This week's episode is brought to you by Uncanny Creative. Jordan, what's Uncanny Creative? Uncanny Creative connects talent like copywriters and designers with Utah businesses who are in need of a little extra help. Let's say you're in marketing and you're working weekends on an upcoming brand refresh. The problem is you're a few designers short and you can't spare any of your time to shower, let alone find freelancers. All of our creative talent are pre-vetted by industry pros and ready to get to work. And because we handle time tracking and invoicing on our end, you can try out different creatives until you find the best fit. No commitment, no awkward breakups, no creepy LinkedIn stalkers. You can visit uncannycreative.com to learn more. Well, I'm going back to you. Welcome to Utah Famous, a podcast about the people, places, and history that make Utah so unexpectedly awesome. I'm Sarah. I'm a Utah transplant with Canadian roots. And I'm Jordan, and I'm a Beehive State native. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Jordan. How's your house (laughs) over there? Oh my gosh, my house is so the same as it's been. I've been... (laughs) Like rearranging my house and like getting new stuff, <laughs> yeah. like not like new stuff, but just like right, a couple, right. a couple things. And I've been yeah. wanting to show you my new <laughs> living room layout. And it's been like this for weeks and you still haven't seen it. It's so weird. I, I want to see it. Maybe. Well, Utah is in a, are we still in the yellow zone? I think right? we're still in the yellow. There's like talk that it's going to go to green, but. No but idea when knows, right? or what that even means. Is green like back to normal? We're done. No masks because that seems a little abrupt. I don't know. I mean, granted, a lot of people in Utah are not wearing masks. Yeah, I'm just that's true. Say that. I don't know if that's a controversial thing, but I have noticed. I've been surprised. Well, I haven't been surprised, but like around in Salt Lake where I'm at, there's a lot of people wearing masks, and then. Nice. So yesterday we had to go to Cal Ranch, which I have never been there before. Oh, because we I've got heard of it. But where is it? It's out in West Jordan, I think. Okay. And we had to go get stuff because we are getting chickens. <gasps> I mean, nice. we actually have chicks. Like they came in the mail today. I picked them up at the post office. They Wait, came like. They're chicks already? Chick. They're just chicks. They're like a week old. Oh, okay. They're so okay. tiny. We bought 10 of them. It only wow. costs $30 to ship 10 chicks from like across the country. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Anyway, so right now they're in our kitchen. <laughs> they're kind of stinking up the house. <laughs> but we're going to put them outside in like the garage with a heat lamp and everything. And um, nice. anyway, they are they are really, really cute. Um, but we had to go to Cal Ranch and I was like, oh shoot, I left our masks. Like they were in a different bag that got left at home. And so I called because I was like, are we allowed to come in without a mask? And the girl was like, oh yeah, 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 definitely. And (laughs) I was like, oh right, we're, we're going to like a more, like a little rural, not even that far, 15 minutes from us, but a little more rural, a little more country. Like nobody in the store had masks on. There were hardly anyone like hardly yeah, anyone was yeah. in there, but it was just like, I'm in a different world all of a sudden. Right. What else are you going to get? Like goats or something? We we did. We're like, we we should put a little, we didn't, but we should put a little, <laughs> a, you know, while we're building this coop, we should put a little gate over here and get some goats yeah. and a cow. And no, I think we're seriously, well, think goats we're good. can mow your lawn, right? Yeah. We did talk about that actually. They that would be kind of nice. 
you have like you section them off and then move them to the next <laughs> part. Yeah, seriously, it'd be, it'd be hilarious. But look into it. <laughs> okay, all right, we'll look into peer it. Peer pressure you into I, getting goats. I'm worried if I suggest it, it will happen because that's like what happened yeah. with the chicks. I mean, I guess we had talked about them for a little while, but it was kind of like yeah. a week ago of like, should we do this? And then all of a sudden we're building a coop and they came nice. in the mail. Follow through is what I call that. Yeah. You followed through. Exactly. Good job. Yes. Nice. Sarah, we didn't mention last week that Utah lost a very important person. Yes. Coach Jerry Sloan passed away. That was so sad. It was such a bummer. He he was 78 years old. Um, yeah. I think everyone um, knew his health was kind of deteriorating and he, um, I think he had like dementia and Parkinson's at the end. And yeah. anyway, yep. but, but uh, such a like iconic Utah, like, hero i don't even know the right he's like a utah treasure is (laughs) what he is yes yes yes. and i know you like have said you're not you weren't like a big jazz fan or whatever but you were in utah when the jazz were like in the nba finals and everything right probably i have no idea okay but i do know who jerry sloan is (laughs) yeah 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 okay yeah because i i was um it would have been it was like 97 and 98 Okay, yeah, I graduated so here. high school in 97. Yeah, okay, I was here. Okay. I forgot that he played for the, the Chicago Bulls for oh, like cool. a, 11 years. And then he came to Utah and he coached for, he was like an assistant coach for a couple of years. And then he became the head coach. And I think he was a coach here for about 24 years. Oh, wow. And then it was the Bulls that beat us in the... NBA finals and twice because, of course, we have to, like, have an amazing team the same time Michael Jordan is alive. That's just our our luck. Yes, of course. Just, yeah, really cool guy. I forgot he, I mean, he coached until 2011. And for some reason, I was, you know, I didn't really, after the Jazz were, like, super good, I didn't really, like, wasn't really paying attention anymore. And yeah, I kind of forgot that he coached for that long it just seems like it was a long long time ago but it wasn't that long ago yeah not too long ago a sad day in utah yeah definitely what i watched some old like clips of him <laughs> nice. freaking out at yeah. <laughs> ref refs <laughs> and um and then just like you know interviews that he did he was just really funny and just kind of like a no like he didn't like take anyone's crap basically yeah <laughs> like, a no nonsense kind no of nonsense for sure so anyway nice that's awesome yeah wanted to make sure we mentioned him yeah for sure um so our last episode we kind of failed to mention for for everyone who cares uh that it was our 30th episode yeah we turned 30 we turned 30 <laughs> we're we're growing up that was i didn't we didn't even realize until we had ended i know it's like oh oh that wait, was our 30th. what number is this yeah 30 wild so i know i'm pretty proud of us i think we've done some good stuff and it's been a lot of fun for me and yeah. but yeah what jordan what was your favorite episode up to now do you think that oh, you did oh my goodness um There's a lot to choose from. I know there's so many. I really have to look at it because I forget some of these. Um, I mean, we know I love Lagoon, so that was really fun. 
Yes. I also really liked Hobbitville because that one was... Yeah, that I, was one of my faves. I loved it. That was fun to, um, mm-hmm. to learn about. I loved your episode about Martha Cannon. Yes. That is, I was going to say, that's one of my favorites. Okay, yeah. What are your, what are, what are your favorite? I, I liked interviewing my brother. <laughs> I think that's like our longest episode. Yeah, it was really fun to just hear you guys. I was, again, I was sad I couldn't be there, but it was fun to hear you guys talk. Yeah, and that one is in one of our top six or seven episodes, which makes me happy, obviously. Um, But what else? I, of course, have to say I love Skinwalker Ranch because that was the episode we had Daniel on. But I I really do. That That was a really good episode. And that is our absolute, by far, most popular episode is our Skinwalker Ranch episode. I mean, who are who's even talking about Skinwalker Ranch? Ranch. I mean, I know there was now there's yeah, kind of a TV show about show. it, but but I even think there still is like just group, searching it. Yeah, there's a group of people who are very paranormal mm-hmm. uh, interested, and so it definitely attracts my people. That group, yeah, which I think. Your, your people, yes. Do you know what's funny? I had in my old, old blogging days, Yes, I had a post about we went to a tiny town where Daniel lived for a couple years growing up in Pennsylvania called Titusville. Uh-huh. And I had a post about going there and there was a, again, another creepy story. There was a creepy uh, cemetery <laughs> that was way, really old um, for, well, for America's standards. It was like so 1700s yeah. or any no maybe it was even earlier than that anyway it was yeah, there, yeah. there was a lore around this um around this tombstone that was it, that it was a witch because there was like it was really creepy looking the tombstone had a circle on it that looked like a scary face and it was re- uh. and like it was red it looked like rust but nowhere else on the tombstone was red. Oh, interesting. And so there was all this lore that it was a witch. And if you were there at a certain time of the year, blood would come out of the eyes of this face on the anyway. So I had a I did a post about it and it got like a couple thousand like oh, when I looked wow. on my analytics, like a couple thousand um, clicks on it because there just wasn't anything else online about oh, it yeah. hardly. Yeah. So it was like by far my most popular. So when we did that episode, awesome. I was like, this one is going to take off. But what's yeah. our second highest? Our second highest episode is Arches National Park. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Our, our National Park ones do really well. That makes um, sense. Because I think there's a wide audience there also yeah i really enjoyed our utah lake episodes part one and part two yeah Um, it was really great to interview sam breaker he did yeah like we said he is like the michael scott of uh (laughs) utah lake he (laughs) He knows loves his job and yeah knows everything but uh, yeah and i would like to do more interviews in the future preferably post-covid but i know but yeah so anyways, thank you everyone for listening. Yeah. Um at all or if you've listened to all of them, super big thank you to you guys. Yeah, and giving us something to do during <laughs> quarantine during this our new lives under quarantine. Our new life underground, yeah. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so this week, Jordan, yes. I think I I gave you a little teaser. 
You gave me about... a couple options that you were thinking of doing, a couple yes. of topics, and then... So I gave you, like, four options, and then I took all of those away, <gasps> and you then I... something totally different? I was... Well, I went with the last one that I hinted oh, at. Oh, okay, okay, okay. To cool. you. So, it's... A doozy of a story. I stumbled on it. I can't even tell you how I stumbled on it. But it's very fascinating, and I hope you enjoy this. Awesome. Um, So I'm going to kind of set the stage, okay? Okay. So I want you to think back to a time when there weren't metal detectors at airports, when Mm -hmm. security was pretty lax, maybe even non-existent. So like, do you remember a time like this? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I remember no metal detectors at all, but uh, right. when I was younger, uh, my dad lives in Washington state. And so I have been flying up to see him yeah. a couple times a year since I was born. I remember like everybody could meet me at the gate and like my mom would walk me on like when I was old enough to fly by myself she would walk me on the plane and get me seated and I you would get off the plane and everyone would be there and it was so fun and then and then 9-11 happened and all of a sudden it was like my mom had to get special permission to walk me to the gate oh yeah and then she had to um or and then I uh, yeah and then special permission to pick me up from the gate and then like anyway but i remember there always being metal detectors yeah, like metal detectors but they were really um, low key and it was like it took you four seconds to get through security yeah, it seemed like, like not for- a big deal at yeah, all yeah yeah so i'm gonna take us back to the 1960s and 70s so mm. this was a time when some flights didn't even have assigned seating i mean i guess southwest flights don't really have Oh, assigned seating, do right, they? Right. I don't know. Anyways. I think they still do not, but I don't, I don't know. I haven't flown in a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, now Let I haven't. On Southwest. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. one has. Um, but like no reservations were required. You could get on a flight and the fares were collected in the air, kind of like <laughs> a train maybe. No, I didn't know so that. So that was the thing. So, and then in this era, like Sky Marshals became a thing in Miami. Do you know what a Sky Marshal is? Like, yeah, they're like randomly like plain on... closed. Yeah, like police or whatever. Yeah, I don't but know they're like dressed as civilians or, or something like that. Yeah, and they're like, okay, so, yeah, that was that they were around. Yeah. So during this time, that became a thing in Miami, mostly because due to like a series of hijacked flights out of Florida that would end up in Cuba. So at the time you couldn't go to Cuba. So people would hijack planes to take them to Cuba. Very political stuff. So 1960 to 1974 was apparently the quote golden age of hijacking until 1974 when passengers began to get screened. So that's when they introduced metal detectors and whatnot. So between those years, there were, oh my gosh, 240 hijackings or attempted hijackings between the U.S. and Cuba alone. No. <laughs> yes. And, they, so, and like they weren't trying to like crash the plane. They just literally were like, there's not yeah. a flight to this country. And so I'm going to make one. Yeah. Like, okay. it was political. And sometimes they would get violent and sometimes people would die to get to where they wanted to, basically. Um, wow. But between, yeah, 19... 19- 68, 1972. So that's six years, right? Yeah. 
No. 16, four, four, four years. Uh, four years. It's okay, Sarah. You don't have okay. to know math now. I mean, it's 2020. I, I know. I'm done learning <laughs> anything. Um, but during ni- 1968 to 1972, there were 326 hijacked attempts, which came out to one every 5.6 days. Oh my um, gosh, that's exhausting. Yes. So the hijacking occurred generally to either take the hijacker to a specific location, so often Cuba, like I said, (laughs) or for extortion with the threat of harm. So again, people have died, pilots have died and stuff, but it was like a quick way, I guess, to get a lot of money. So pilots were told to just comply with hijackers' requests. So like these large sums of money were acquired via hijacking. Just kind of crazy. Wow. And they just could get away with it. Yes. And just for reference, obviously... 9-11 was the worst incident caused by hijackers. Um, And as far as I know that I could find, since 2010, there have been 15 hijackings worldwide with three casualties. 15? 15. And between those four years, there were 326. So That is crazy. It was just like a thing. Yeah, during the 60s and 70s, hijacking was just a thing. And they happened so much that it was often... For passengers and whatnot, like just an inconvenience, um, oh, and like television, yeah, television shows created like parodies of it. No, um, it was so normal. It was just everyday kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Time magazine even ran like a lighthearted comedy piece called "What to Do When the Hijacker Comes." So it was just. A thing, strange, strangely enough. I mean, it, at least it doesn't. They weren't. Didn't sound like they were violent. Um, for the most part, yes. I okay. think with the number being that high, I think the yeah. I don't think there were a lot of casualties. Okay, but and obviously after hijacking, I think kind of in the eighties and stuff, it became more serious and more of like a terrorist type thing. So anyways, so I'm going to read this account of a hijacking that hits a little close to home. Um, And this account comes from the fearoflanding.com website. So are you ready, Jordan? I am so excited. Okay, let's do it. Okay. So Richard McCoy was a devout Mormon who had lived in Provo, Utah since 1962 when he enrolled at Brigham Young University. He dropped out to join the Army, where he served two years in Vietnam as a demolition expert and pilot. He was wounded in action, for which he was awarded the Purple Heart in 1964 and was sent home to recuperate. He returned to Brigham Young University, where he met his future wife. He then agreed to serve another term in the Army on the condition that he could go to Vietnam. This time he was awarded an Army Commendation Medal for Heroism. In 1968, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for a rescue he flew as a combat helicopter pilot. So, when he returned to Utah, he considered a third tour of Vietnam, but his wife refused. He volunteered as a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard and took up skydiving as a hobby. He taught Mormon Sunday school and returned to Brigham Young University again, this time to study law enforcement. He told friends that he wished to become an FBI or CIA agent. But money was tight. He received $243 a month from the GI Bill. 
for veterans' benefits, which wasn't enough to support his wife and two children. The family were were in serious financial problems, and his marriage began to suffer under the stress of their situation. His wife, whose salary was supporting the family, threatened him with divorce. And I think I was looking stuff up. I think she was a teacher at Provo High School. Mm. But I'm not 100% sure. Um, McCoy also believed that his income from the GI Bill would be terminated soon. He needed to get money from somewhere. Mm. So there was a guy named Dan Cooper who just, or D.B. Cooper is what he also goes by, and I don't know if that's his real name or if that is an alias, but okay. this was a popular, like, well-publicized hijacking. It was all over the news. Um, and at the time, McCoy told a friend that he thought Cooper should have asked for $500,000 instead of the $200,000 Cooper received. He told the same friend that he had come up with a foolproof plan for hijacking a plane. <laughs> you know, just sharing that around. Yeah, I just, I've been thinking about it a lot and I have a plan and Here's I'm not plan. crazy. Just listen. And I'm going to tell you this plan. <laughs> um, so he convinced his wife to give him $500 in order to carry out this foolproof plan. He needed flight tickets, guns, and a disguise. She later said that she didn't think he would actually do it, but she bought him a parachute and typed up his list of instructions for the pilots before driving him to Salt Lake International Airport. Oh, my. <laughs> what? I did yeah. not think that's where that was yes. going to go. Okay. Yeah. So it was a 50-mile drive, and they argued the entire way. She <laughs> left him at the airport, still not believing that he would actually They were arguing at all if this was a good plan. They were just arguing like, about oh yeah, the dishes. Like something else. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so McCoy took a flight to Denver, Colorado. Using the alias James Johnson, he booked himself onto United Airlines flight. Of course, I was like, of course it's United. Oh. I have bad experiences with United Airlines. <laughs> he booked himself onto United Airlines flight 855, which was on a stopover on its flight from New Jersey to California. The aircraft was a Boeing 727, the same aircraft type as Dan Cooper had hijacked four months earlier. The Boeing 727 had a rear set of air stairs built in, which Cooper had used to exit the flight after his demands had been met. McCoy planned to do the same. So he boarded wow. the aircraft and sat in his assigned seat 20D at the back of the 727. After he sat down, a passenger agent entered the aircraft to say that someone had left an envelope in the waiting room. McCoy claimed it, and the agent handed it over. Inside the envelope were the two pages of instructions which his wife had typed up, a hand grenade pin, and a bullet. So Wait, in the envelope? In the envelope. So he forgot this in the waiting room. <laughs> And I mean, luckily somebody found it. And it's it's the 60s, so someone is kind enough to return it. Someone's like, oh, this must belong to someone and didn't open it, luckily. Oh, wow. Okay, so McCoy then left his seat to go to the lavatory and then didn't come back out. Eventually, one of the pilots came to ask him to please return to his seat for takeoff. He came out apparently wearing his disguise. 
Some passengers reported that he had put on a wig and a false mustache. Oh Others God. reported that a second person came out of the laboratory, and I don't think that's true. Yeah. But he put on a wig and a false mustache. Another <laughs> report I re- read said, like, he put, like, makeup on his face and all this crazy stuff. Oh, my goodness. So. Winner, winner. Minutes- <laughs> yes, this is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. So 20 minutes after takeoff, passengers reported to the cabin crew that there was a, quote, finely dressed man (laughs) at the back who was holding a hand grenade. She asked an off-duty pilot who was on board as a passenger to assess the situation. Meanwhile, the captain announced a diversion to Grand Junction Airport. So they, like, told everyone on the plane, you know, we have plane issues, so instead of... Going to L.A., we're going to quickly stop at Grand Junction because they knew there was a crazy person on board. Okay. As the off-duty pilot approached the back of the plane, McCoy pulled out a pistol. P.S. I think the pistol and the grenade were fake, just so you know. Okay. McCoy pulled out a pistol and handed the man a sealed envelope upon which was written hijack instructions. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So it's it's hard to believe that the envelope was so clearly labeled when the gate agent brought to him, but it could have been, it must have been the case that there was a smaller envelope and a big one, although... None of the reports mention that. Excuse this. me, I found an envelope that um, has some hijacking, hijacking instructions. instructions. We better get this to the owner. Yes, who who does this belong to? Um, in any event, McCoy told the man to give the envelope to the cabin crew member so she could take it to the captain. He instructed the other passengers in rows 19 and 20 to move to first class in the front of the aircraft, which they were more than happy to do. <laughs> If we are going to have this delay, I would love to be first class. (laughs) I'm going to go to first class and get away from the guy with the gun and the grenade. Mm -hmm. Um, According to one account, the first class cabin crew member spoke to a doctor on board and asked if he had a medical bag with him as there was a man on board with a grenade. The doctor reputedly said that, yes, he did, but it wouldn't much help if a hand grenade blew up a an entire plane full of people. <laughs> yeah, what was that? What yeah. was their plan there? <laughs> That's not that helpful. Yeah. Um, the typed up instructions told the captain to land at San Francisco International Airport and park at runway 19 left. The letter gave strict orders as to how many people could be near the plane at any time and the distance from the aircraft that all vehicles had to maintain, with the exception of the fuel truck. So while the aircraft was being refueled, Authorities were to deliver $500,000 in cash and four parachutes to the aircraft. The captain decided that the safest course of action was to comply with the hijacker demands. The passengers were told that Grand Junction Airport could not handle the necessary repairs (laughs) and that instead they were diverting to San Francisco. The flight crew notified San Francisco International Airport that they had been hijacked and they were inbound. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. United Airlines were contacted and agreed to meet the demands of the hijacker. See, this is why it was so successful. Yeah, they just (laughs) everyone complied. Give them what they want. Yeah. Yeah. When the aircraft landed at San Francisco, they delivered two flight bags with $500,000 in cash and four parachutes. The Boeing 727 was refueled to full. This would give the 727 a range of over 3,000 miles. 
enough to fly to the East Coast. By now, the sun had set and darkness was falling. The passengers and one cabin crew member were released, and the hijacker asked for all cargo to be removed from the plane. So at least the passengers and their luggage got off in San Francisco. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so they're just all, like, just he's, like, like, in the cockpit at this point, and he's just, like, do no, everyone's he's, he, he's not in the cockpit. He's in the back of the plane still. Oh, okay, okay. So he just keeps handing these notes up to the pilot. So I don't honestly I don't think the pilot ever saw him. And no one's even trying to arrest him or anything. No, nothing. Oh um, wow. Yeah. So he handed over his baggage check slip so they could deliver his luggage to the cabin. The remaining crew members were told to remain in the cockpit while he stayed in the rear. McCoy then used the rear intercom to tell the cabin crew member to come to him for the next instructions. He gave he gave her a handwritten note. So he ran out of typed notes <laughs> that his <laughs> wife typed up. Um, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So he yeah gave her a handwritten note which he told the flight crew to take off towards the east and climb to 16,000 feet. Further notes passed to the pilots via the hijacker instructed them to fly 180 knots exactly via specific waypoints leading to a zigzag pattern over central Utah and finally to depressurize the cabin. And he collected the notes back from the cabin crew member every time so that there would be no record. Right. So two Coast Guard aircraft, C-130 Hercules, followed the 727, but one of the hijack notes warned that if McCoy saw any pursuit planes, he would blow up the aircraft after he jumped detonating a hidden explosive device. <laughs> the, ca- the captain asked the C-130s to stay out of sight. All 727 cockpit doors had been equipped with a fisheye peephole in reaction to the Dan Cooper hijacking. Mm. But it didn't didn't help because McCoy simply placed a piece of tape over the peephole. <laughs> uh, yeah. However, the second officer found that he could see into the cabin from the gap under the cockpit door. He watched as McCoy put on a jumpsuit, a helmet, and one of the parachutes. He then shut off the cabin lights and sent one last note via the cabin crew member asking for wind, ground, and airspeeds of the aircraft, altimeter settings, and local weather conditions. Hmm. So. Oh my gosh. After, yeah, this is just nuts. I find this story crazy. Yeah, no wonder it was um, on the news. Yeah. Okay. So, after the 727 had passed the last Utah waypoint on his route, a cabin crew member left the cockpit to check and found that the cabin was empty. The flight crew diverted to Salt Lake City International Airport. It had been five hours since the man with the grenade had been spotted at the back of the plane. The aircraft landed safely, and the FBI rushed to the scene and searched the aircraft for evidence. They collected everything the hijacker might have touched— Although I think another account said he was wearing gloves, so I don't know. Mm. Anyways. Yeah, yeah. Um, including seatbelts, gum wrappers, cigarette butts, and a copy of United's passenger publication, Mainliner Magazine. He read it while found, he was in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> he was basically shopping at Sky Mall while <laughs> he was waiting to take over the plane. Yes. Um, they also had one handwritten note, which the hijacker had accidentally left behind. 
the cabin crew member noticed he'd forgotten to ask her for it and quickly hid it from sight. Mm. The FBI now had samples of the hijacker's handwriting and a clear fingerprint on the cover of Mainliner magazine. <laughs> oh my gosh. So he totally messed up there. Yes. So meanwhile, Provo City Police and the Utah County Sheriff's Department searched the countryside near Provo, where they believed he had bailed out. They found no trace of him that night. The following day, McCoy, this is one of my favorite parts, McCoy was on National Guard duty and flew one of the helicopters involved in the search for the hijacker. Wait, what? Like he like volunteered to help look for himself? He, he was on duty for National Guard. Okay, okay. They were using the National Guard to search for the hijacker who had jumped out of an airplane. Okay, wait. How come they, they didn't hear... Did they hear a, win, a door or a window open when he jumped out? Like, how did they... They weren't sure know. if he had jumped out or where or when? I think it might have been down below. Like, oh. the opening was maybe where the cargo was. I'm not and sure. And so they didn't hear it or something. So they or didn't maybe he know. had it open the whole time or I don't know. Okay. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Um... So he's at, he has the, in a helicopter and he's looking for the hijacker. <laughs> he's look, looking for the hijacker. Um, oh, and wow. And not surprisingly, they did not find him. No one was looking in the helicopter. Or <laughs> looked him, yeah. in themselves. Yeah. I mean, why would they? Um, however, the investigation was progressing. So that morning, the FBI's Salt Lake City office received a phone call. The caller said his acquaintance had told him that he had a foolproof plan for hijacking oh my a plane. So his friend spilled. Um, so McCoy's friend remembered the conversation they had after right. the Dan Cooper hijacking and knew that McCoy had the skills to be able to pull this off because he was a, he would jump out of planes all the time. Um, but so now the FBI had a name. So the search in Provo also had a lead. A motorist reported picking up a hitchhiker wearing a jumpsuit and carrying a duffel bag at a roadside hamburger stand outside of Provo. <laughs> the FBI took a photograph of McCoy to the restaurant where an employee recognized him and said she sold him a milkshake the night of the hijacking around 11.30 p.m. No, that and, was I mean, his he reward. And he $500,000 on him. So wow. he was set. So the FBI agents pulled McCoy in for questioning and of course he denied that he had anything to do with the hijacking and agreed to give them a sample of his handwriting. The Department of the Army were also happy to help supplying McCoy's fingerprints as well as samples of his handwriting which they had on file. All three handwriting samples matched. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> wouldn't you give them like a fake handwriting sample? Maybe yeah. not. Yeah, you would definitely Be like, like I'm left-handed now. And yeah, right with your how... left hand. Yep. Yeah. Um, and the fingerprint on the cover of the Mainliner magazine matched the print which the Army had on file. So on the 10th of April, three days after the hijacking, the FBI arrested Richard McCoy Jr. at his home on wow. a charge of air piracy. Oh they gosh. also, yeah, they also had a search warrant for the house where they found $499,970 wrapped in bank bands in a cardboard box. <laughs> so he spent $30. 
<laughs> no which way. i find hilarious he just um, he didn't even know what to do with it i he's that, like and he just i'm burning a hole in this just no he bought yeah. that milkshake and then yeah and then put some gas in the car 30 yeah 30 dollars oh that's too funny um that's they such also a bummer took- <laughs> you would only spend know, that much i know he only got 30 dollars out of it they also took two electric typewriters a parachute and harness and a pistol as possible evidence so this was the seventh hijacking involving parachutes in the five months following Dan Cooper's hijack. Oh. So like he started like this parachuting trend of right. hijackers. Right. Um, so what happened to the missing $30? No one ever knew. <laughs> so <laughs> it does seem likely he used some of that to buy a milkshake. So two months later, McCoy was found guilty and sentenced to 45 years in prison. But his story doesn't end there. <laughs> okay. I looked up um, how much $500,000 is. Oh, yeah. Was back then. Or, and, you know, how much that is worth now. Yeah. $500,000 would have been $3,100,000. Oh, wow. $30 back then would be the equivalent to $227 now. So okay. still compared to three million two hundred dollars is a sad amount to spend when you just <laughs> yes. did a lot of work to get it. Yes. That's a lot of money. Three million. That is a lot of money. That's crazy. Okay, so his story doesn't end there. Two years later, McCoy was in the headlines again. So this is from the New York Times. Four inmates, including a former Mormon Sunday school teacher involved in a bizarre hijacking in 1972, commandeered a garbage truck today and broke out of the federal penitentiary here, the state police said. Of course, piece so of this cake. Is already in, did an airplane. <laughs> yes. So this is in Pennsylvania. Okay. And it says, although the convicts were described as armed, it turned out that <laughs> McCoy had created a fake handgun out of dental paste he'd stolen from the prison's dental office. Oh, l- oh right my then. gosh. Like he like molded it? He like made a fake gun out of dental paste. And so they're like, they were armed, but it was a dental paste gun. Wow. Yes. And so after that, McCoy went to Virginia Beach, Florida, but it took just three months for the FBI to track him down. I'm not sure how he got there or whatnot. Um, And then one day McCoy found the FBI waiting for him at his home. And he fired a handgun, a real one this time, <laughs> and one of the agents fired back, killing him. Oh so, my gosh! That is the story of That's the BYU incredible. hijacker. <laughs> I'm going to call it the BYU hijacker. I like that. Um, yeah, and so there was a book written by some former FBI agents saying that Richard McCoy and DB Cooper were the same person. Oh, and, and that it was yeah, just kind of. A, a repeat hmm. but i think most people believe that he was just a copycat of db cooper um and even his wife like adamantly denies that he is also db cooper so she even sued the guys writing the book in and in in 1992 because they said like she was involved more than she claimed she was and there were like some facts in there that she said were not true and mm. so and she never got in trouble for helping 
I don't think so. And I could be wrong. I just couldn't find anything. But I think the case was settled in 1992. Um, they had to take those things out and were not allowed to sell the movie rights to the book. But the book is still out there. Like, you can read it. It's called D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, for those interested. But I couldn't find much on his widow, Karen McCoy. Now, I think she still lives in Utah, as far as I could find. But I think the last time she was in the news was 1992 for the lawsuit. Wow. And then they have two kids. And yeah. They could also possibly They're around live here, in Utah probably. still. Wow, that is but wild. Isn't that just nuts? <laughs> I know, like, this isn't... Obviously, he's a criminal. But for yeah. some reason, I really admire someone that puts so much work into something I and know. doesn't harm anybody. And yes. has, like, I mean, uses there was his a threat. Skill. Threatened to harm people. That's true. That's true. Whether real or not, you know. Right, right. To have the, the gall to do that and then... I know. To actually, to, like, like... Go through with it. Yeah. And be, I mean, he's, he was a successful except for his friend snitched on him, really. He probably would have totally gotten away with yeah. it. So there was his, his downfall. Yeah. And for some reason, it does give me like catch me if you can vibes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but. Which we have to do a Frank Abagnale episode, which we talked well, about. Honestly, so I looked it up and because Frank Abagnale said he taught at BYU. Um, but then I saw something where he said he was just a teacher's assistant for a little while. Oh. Because BYU has, like, no record of him teaching there, and he is um, a career liar. <laughs> right, so, right, right. And so that was the most I could find. Because I was well, like, he would oh, have been, like, I'll under an add. alias, right? I know. And they're like, did you use an alias? And he's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> he couldn't remember. He's like, I've had so many aliases. Right. So, I have no idea. Like, but he, no did, but he didn't. Okay, okay. But he was like, I think it was more like a teacher's assistant or something. That would probably make more sense. Because I, if I remember right, like, when he was pretending to be a doctor or whatever, yeah. he, he would always be like, well, let's see you do it. Like, let's, you know, like he would yeah. kind of, so I could see the, that kind of passes the buck. Yeah. 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 But so that was the, that was his only stunt in Utah, right? I think so. That I just looked up that one because we had chatted about that. Okay. But, okay. Cool. But yeah, it kind of like, I almost want to see this movie, even though I don't know if a movie can be made about this, but yeah, it's just kind of interesting. It's just interesting that um, hijacking was even popular. Like I didn't, I, I had no idea. Like it was such a thing. So There's interesting. Story okay, cool. Of Richard McCoy. Very cool. I'm so glad. Yeah. That is so funny how you were planning on other another topic yeah. and then you just kind of stumbled <laughs> like, on that wait one. Wait a second. That was that was a fun story. Now I know. Now I know how to hijack a plane in the well, 60s. Not in the 60s, right? 70s because... Thank goodness. I don't think we could pull that off. I would have been so annoyed like being on the plane of just yeah. like, oh, I didn't want to land in San Francisco. <laughs> I know. Well, and like reading about the flights that went to Cuba and like how Fidel Castro like welcomed a plane once like they got off the plane and Fidel Castro was there and just cr crazy stuff crazy I can't imagine that being normal because 
hijacking plane sounds terrible yeah yeah well and now it's so it's so violent and it probably was yeah then a couple times but um yeah it sounds like it was more of just like (laughs) crazies that just like wanted money and wanted to go to cuba or whatever it's like instead of robbing a bank i'm going to hijack Hijack an airplane it just takes so So much more work yeah, and just more obvious, it seems. <laughs> yeah. You have to buy a plane ticket. And to more get like out. time for them to get you and. Yeah, and radio people and so complicated. Crazy. <laughs> this hijacking business. Yeah. Glad it's, I'm glad it's, for the most yeah. part, it's over. Yeah, so I'm glad people it's don't not. People really, that's not a career no. path anymore. No, thankfully. <laughs> But anyways, there you go. Thanks, Sarah. That was fun. Yeah. I had no idea. That was cool. I know. Kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find us on Instagram at Utah Famous. We have a Facebook page that you're welcome to join. We are on Twitter at Utah Famous Pod. And you are always welcome to email us at utahfamous at gmail.com with comments or suggestions for upcoming episodes. And that's a wrap. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, I'm going back to 